Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. I was born in an igloo, made of snow, 200 meters from where I'm living. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to Ideas, and welcome to the unceded territory of Pavernatuk on the eastern shore of Hudson Bay. I was born uh, almost by a duck team. It was middle of the night. And uh, they didn't have any vehicles of any kind. My father said a young man went to get the midwife. He had about 100 dogs following him. He was surprised there were no, no dog fight with 100 dogs. And she made it back, she made it to the igloo on time? Talk to him ambulance, <laughs> I always say. My name is Porsi Nualingok. I'm from Bontok. I lived here all my life. I never moved. One of the reasons Paul Lucy has never moved is because his father made a stand. When the Hudson's Bay Company decided in the, in the early 50s that the village where they were uh, trading was too shallow and the ships couldn't come inside. So he told my dad, who was the leader then, that they should move to another community with deeper water, which was uh, Cape Smith at the time, was just north of here, uh, 100 kilometers. He thought for a while, he went back and I told him, look, you can move, but we're not moving. My people, this is our land and we're staying here. We survived here for a thousand years. We'll survive for another thousand. This is the first episode in a special series about change and resilience in Nunavik, the Inuit homeland that stretches from Hudson Bay to the Angava coast, north of the 55th parallel, in what is now considered northern Quebec. We're calling this series Another Country a title inspired by the work of Nunavik filmmaker Bobby Hanoyak. Dear passengers, uh, welcome to Pumanisuk for your uh, safety. We ask you to remain seated with your seatbelt fastened, your carry-on baggage safely sewed. The village of Pavernatuk is reachable only by plane. In winter, Pavernatuk blends seamlessly with the frozen Hudson Bay, all of it blindingly white and snow-quiet, mostly. This village has a long history of resistance. Of the 14 communities in Nunavik, Pavernatuk is the only one that has never signed the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement. Pavernatuk has never and will never sell our birthright inheritance. We are, of course, not going to hoard these resources because we are a society and culture that shares, and according to our traditions, sharing is how we survived. 
Both those ideas, autonomy and cooperation, are embodied in a slogan that hangs on the local co-op. The people of Pavernatuk working together for themselves. And that is what we're calling this episode. We begin with a story passed down through the generations. It's a story Lisa Koper-Kwalak, now the president of the Inuit Circumpolar Council's Canadian branch, heard from her grandfather when she was a young girl in Pavernatuk. I was a small girl, small bones, small. <laughs> I'm five feet two. So he once told of the giant and the Inuk and how they fought. Inukpak, giant, and Inuk faced one another. They fought, they sparred, but the Inuk was swifter and faster, though less strong than the giant. It's a bit like David and Goliath's story, but, but this is the Inuk version. So when he told that story, I'm like, that's right. I may be small, but I have these abilities as well. Probably influenced very much your thinking about justice, too, right? That's right. My name is Lisa Khilukri Hopekwaluk. I was born in Puvernitouk and raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was an Anglican minister, but he also very much valued our Inuit way of being, our songs, our stories. It took a long time for Lisa Koperkwalak to realize how growing up with her grandfather's stories shaped her. But then I, I finally went back and heard my grandfather's voice. And I realized how close it is in me. And the stories, that those type of stories are our creation stories. You know, shamanism is the basis of our culture, how we deal with the Arctic world, how we survive in an Arctic world where others think it's impossible, but we made it possible because of how we innovate, how we create, how we see the world as it was created with our people in it. Those stories are a crucial part of Lisa Koperkwalik's inheritance, something she carries with her as she navigates a very different world than the one in which her grandparents were born. For Paulusi Novalinga, the inheritance closest to his heart is hunting. It's a tradition he inherited from his father. He taught me how to hunt since I was eight years old. Do you remember the first time you went on a hunt? Yes, I shot a polar bear. On your first eight, hunt? At eight years old, yeah. The guy was uh, nine feet long. <sighs> they don't want to get bitten. So each time I got close, he sat down. was protecting his lower part. But you got him? Yeah, I went up very close. My father was screaming. <sighs> How important... Is a trip like that for a young boy in Pavernatuk back then? To me, it was like a, an experience that 
is passed on from generation to generation. But the authorities, like the school, the administration, the federal government, wanted us to stay in, in around the village and go to school. And we, we were made to even lose our language, but we didn't, not on this coast. As a young man, Paulusi witnessed a series of changes that radically altered the Inuit way of life. When he was 16, he was sent away to a federal day school in Great Whale River, or Kujarapik, three communities south. It was uh, run by ex-priests and nuns as well, who ran the school. What was that like? Um, Not too bad. We, We heard about weirder stories, but let's say we took care of ourselves. Are you able to tell me what that means, we took care of ourselves? I went to work on weekends in repairing machines because I was a mechanic class as well. Most of the guys I went to school with, they have a job, but the other guys who went to other schools, they're dying as pumps. Uh, they, they did nothing all their lives. They, they were too hurt or, or, yes, they were hurt by abuse that was going on. Some were uh, died out there, eh? Yeah. So I grew up in the time when they were residents of school. And I quit. One year later, uh, I ran away. You they ran were, away. Used to be a one plane every week, and it landed on the ice uh, on skis. We were on our New Year's break. When the plane arrived, I ran away into the central hand. Nobody found me. I had no more dogs when I came back. I looked around town. And I saw only very few Eskimo dogs left. They had been shot by the RCMP and the DNA, Department of National Affairs, Indian Affairs. So they did that so we would stay in one one place. We would be easier to gather, to make us work or... Yeah, was kind of like killing a way of life. In stories from the 1950s and 60s, people often talk about losing control. Agents for the federal government took a more active role in shaping life in the North. The Hudson Bay Company became a major force in the region people started to rely on selling furs and artwork to the company to make a living, which meant they were at the company's mercy if its managers decided to move a trading post or to stop buying. Here's how Pavernatuk resident Aliva Tulugak described the situation in his book, A New Way of Sharing. We felt we were losing our old way of life, and with it, the ability to control our own survival. 
We felt more and more under the control of bosses that knew little of our culture and our way of life. But the people of Pervernatuck found an antidote and a way of regaining autonomy by forming their own co-op. We are a society and culture that shares, and according to our traditions, sharing is how we survived. This is Harry Tulagak. He's a leading Inuit rights negotiator, a former mayor of Pervernatuck, and a former manager of its co-op. That last one is a role that runs in the family. His father was the Pervernatuck co-op's first general manager. And what drove him was he knew two cousins had starved to death when there was a Hudson's Bay outpost and there was a warehouse that had flour in it. And they, if the Hudson Bay people were human, they would have given that flour to make bannock to eat. But he had two cousins starved to death. And he vowed to himself that he will do something about that. He laid the foundation with the help of the local Catholic priest, Andrew Steinman. We called him Umikalak because he spoke our language. but He spoke it better than I did. <laughs> and he was very instrumental in helping to get the people to work together. And I have to say it comes from literally from out of the ground because the man heard that he could sell that soapstone in a little figurine if he made it well enough that people are willing to buy it. So he goes out with his meager tools, with his ice chisel and a, an axe, and mines that soapstone, produces a beautiful object. He sells it, it comes back to the people, and it just it comes literally from out of the ground. The co-op began as an artist's collective. One of those sculptors was Lisa Koperqualik's grandfather, Isa Koperqualik. So the co-op was so important to my grandfather that even when he was frail and old, and he'd always put his nasak, his hat on, and... Uh, Sometimes, of course, he'd forget it and come back and, and grab it <laughs> and go to the co-op each day. He was so proud of that co-op. And the co-op to him and to others in the community of Pouvanito was um, the vehicle in which autonomy, economic autonomy, would be gained. And with economic autonomy, there would be gained the government, an Inuit government. And that was the principle of the cooperative movement. He once told me, we formed the co-op so we don't have to be reaching our hands out asking others for money. So imagine him and others already thinking like this in the 50s. Its members are so committed to the process of being a good cooperative member that this is one of the strongest co-ops in Nunavik of the 14 villages. The whole system, through our federation, our Ilagisak, contributes over $300 million a year to our, our, our economy. Incredible. Annually. Wow. That's amazing. Today, the Pavernita Co-op is a massive building of over 17,000 square feet. It's busy all the time. Outside the store, skidoos and all-terrain vehicles come and go. On a bright day, 
The silver and blue siding gleams in the sun. And there's a big sign in Inuktitut syllabics, which reads, The people of Pavernatuk working together for themselves. Just the meaning of that says a lot. That's how this co-op came to be. And now here we are. It's growing. It's big business now. My name is Jonas Hinoyok Siwabik. I work here at the Cooperative Association of Puvanituk. I'm the general manager. I'm new. I started three years ago. It's a very heavy job, especially for a new younger generation, because we have the co-op store, the hotel, the restaurant, gas station, distribution of jet fuel and diesel fuel. We also have apartments, also a uh, transit house, which is uh, used for patients going to hospitals. When we shop here at Co-op, if you check your receipt, you will see a local tax of 1%. And that uh, local tax 1% is being accumulated so we can use it for discounts. So these are the uh, Arctic chars. The hunters, fishermen uh, cut them out on the land. And then they come back with their sleds full of fish. Example, they can go up to 2,000 pounds per sled. So it says here, Arctic char, 50% off ticket price. Yes. And how does that help? I mean, obviously, there's a savings there, but why do you do that? Why specifically the Arctic char? Arctic char is the the best fish, I can say, because uh, that's how I grew up, eating Arctic chars. It's helping a lot uh, the community. That one fish can feed a lot of families too. Absolutely. Yeah, and we know that it's healthy because we know where it's coming from. It's coming from the wild land. The co-op also uses its local tax to fund major discounts on furniture, appliances, and groceries every December. And if there's any money left over... The word profit doesn't exist in that system. It's called surplus. Whatever is left over is given back to the members. Jonas, he shows us around the bustling floor of the co-op. This is uh, one of my boss. Hello. Uh, Hi, boss. Nice to meet you. This is... uh, Administrative Assistant General Manager, Riley. Riley. She has so many years of experience. Even if I'm the top boss, Mm -hmm. I go see her too sometimes. (laughs) So that's why sometimes I call her boss. (laughs) The thing is uh, the hierarchy thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It doesn't exist in a co-op. It's upside down. I'll tell you, the hierarchy that we usually see in South is general manager being on top. But for me, I don't want to be on top. Okay. I'm at the bottom, very way bottom. And then I have all my staffs on my shoulders. 
And then there's also board of directors on my shoulders. And then on top of that, there are members. You can buy almost anything at the co-op. Groceries. We always in the south hear about this section yes. and how expensive it is. All the fresh produces have to be sent by air. If we send them by boat, well, they'll all be rotten, <laughs> right? So we have to send them by air as fast as we can. That's, how, that's why they are a bit expensive. Sealskins and fur for making parkas. We make our own winter clothing. These furs basically cut the wind. Hunting equipment. Even these knives for, uh, these are good for skinning caribous. We even uh, have firearms for sale. We Inuit don't have seasons, hunting seasons. There's always hunting. There's always hunting. It's part of who we are. You can also buy toys, but these days, not that many. The toys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the toys. (laughs) For us Inuit, the toys are a piece of garbage. (laughs) Okay. We, We buy them. We bring them home, and then they're all over the place. Six months later, they end up in the garbage. So here, what we did here in Co-op is we have asked our FCNQ support to reduce the shipping of toys by 75%. We no longer want garbage, (laughs) basically. Toys are good for kids, but we have outdoor. I used to play outside in Blizzard and uh, I would have fun. No toys. Play, no toys, playing with snow, dogs, sledding. When I first met him, Jonasi told me right away that Inuit live double lives. When we sit down in his office, he gestures out the window. It's a snowy day, and the sky and the frozen Hudson Bay are both completely white. Outside the window, there's nothing. That's your thought. There's nothing, right? But for me, you got everything you need to survive out there. That's where my ancestors came from, out there, where there's nothing. And now that I'm here since I was born inside buildings. I'm forgetting who I am at the same time. Tell me about, if you don't mind me asking. Yes. Tell me about that thing you told me about, that there is a double life that you're leading. Yeah. Most Inuit, we have two lives that we live every day. Like now, I live in a system that was created by the colonizers, let's say, and we can do it. Plus, we also have to, example, if I want to eat caribou meat, well, where do I go? I'm not going to buy it from here. I'll go where my ancestors went. I'll go out there, go hunt, go look. That's the other half of life we have to keep if we don't want to forget who we are. This system we now live on, where we have to make money to pay our bills. 
where we have to make money to eat food. It's basically uh, making Inuit people wait for money and do nothing else. They wait for money. When they get money, they go buy food. They go back home. So all this system that was created and then imposed on us is killing our own identity. We are killing our own self. Jonas, he says, he started thinking about how a money-based system shapes his life during the COVID pandemic. Because you, you need to make money to eat food, right? Even you. Absolutely. But if I take your money away, what are you going to do? How are you going to eat? It's a great question. That's a question that you should be asking yourself. Because I asked myself this question. Mm. Now, this question that I'm asking myself is leading me back to my own roots, bloodline. I know you say that living this way, the money-based way, is killing you, is, to use your words. On the other hand, this is the community sharing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, again, that's why I said that this business is a big responsibility because it was founded by our ancestors. Like Harry and Lisa, Yonasi is a descendant of one of the co-op's founders. His great-grandfather, a renowned artist, was its first president. So we are very grateful that our ancestors worked so hard to found this co-op. The very good thing about this money-based system is uh, we are helping each other as a community by cooperating. Interesting that you have this loyalty to these two different traditions yeah. of your ancestors. Yeah. It's, um, I wouldn't call it loyalty. I would call it more like responsibility based on who I am. It's like a gift. So, so, so I have to be responsible. It's very challenging because, again, we have to live two lives in one. And now that the spring is coming, well, short staff will be, will be happening very often because many will be out there. And I have nothing against that because, again, it's part of who we are. A staff that is telling me he, he or she wants to go hunting, I'm not going to say no. You don't have vacation days anywhere. You're not going. I don't do that. I say, yeah, good. I'm happy. Go out. Go out there. I'm happy. I'm not against it because if I'm against it, well, I'm against my own self. On Ideas, you're listening to a documentary called The People of Pavernatuk Working Together for Themselves. This is a first episode in a series about change and resilience in Nunavik. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. 
I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. This is CBC Radio. If the government is in a rush to uh, settle the land claims, uh, I'd offer a good suggestion that instead of going through all the legal uh, procedures and spending all that money on lawyers and uh, the time spent in the courtroom, I'd uh, suggest that the uh, Prime Minister of Canada or even the Premier of Quebec come up north and um, we'll face them off with our oldest lady and put them uh, maybe 50 to 100 miles inland and see uh, who can survive the longest and that would uh, settle the, uh, the land claim fastest. That is from the 1970s, when Pavernatuk became the hub of fierce resistance to the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement. It's a fight that still shapes what Pavernatuk is today. It began when then-Quebec Premier René Lévesque wanted to build a series of hydroelectric dams and to pave the way for mining and forestry in the north. The Cree of James Bay, who are most immediately affected by the James Bay Power Project, ratified in December. Opposition to the agreement was much greater among the Inuit of northern Quebec, who gave up all their rights and claims to territory in Quebec in exchange for $90 million and exclusive use of 3,130 square miles, or 1% of the territory which they traditionally use and inhabit. Opposition to the agreement is based in the Hudson Bay settlement of Pavungnatuk. Our uh, elders and leaders were trying to convince the rest of the com- all of the other communities at the time, please don't sign this, it's, it's, this is not what you're supposed to do. Inuit rights negotiator Harry Tulagak. You can't sell your land because our, our children, the future of our children, they have, to, they have to survive out here. They have to live off this land. You can't sell it. I was... Just a teenager, when those discussions were happening, I could feel the, the tension and, and the anger in, in the voices of people who were expressing themselves. Lisa Koperkwalak, the president of the Inuit Circumpolar Council Canada. I worked for the community council as a student for the summer while I was home for summer. Uh, the mayor was Aisara Prinnoyua at the time. And he brought out this paper. It was a, a document to be signed because we are against the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement. And all of Pouvernitonneut signed this document, including me as a teenager. How, how did that feel as a teenager to be making that stand? I felt like I was very much a part of our own uh, movement and expressing that, that we didn't agree with giving away our ancestral rights, our Aboriginal rights. My own great-uncle would talk and say we would be giving away our land 
if we sign this, and I completely agree. I agree to to this day. Birthright inheritance is a very big deal. I read the Bible, Genesis chapter 25, between Esau and Jacob. And Esau, the elder twin, sells his birthright inheritance to his younger brother Jacob. And the consequences of that transaction are amazing, generational, all the way up to the New Testament. There's a reference in there about Esau did the wrong thing. He sold his birthright. And we have never sold our birthright, and we will not suffer the consequences of selling one's, our birthright like Esau did. That was our, our cry to the rest of the, uh, the villages, but they didn't listen. Last Friday, the results of the Northern Quebec Inuit ratification vote on the James Bay Agreement were announced in Montreal. 95% were in favor of the agreement. So Pouvernito is known <laughs> to be different from the other communities because of that stance. And that stance we took made us enemies of the other communities because the other communities signed on to the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement. And we're now the only one who has not signed on to it. We were so forceful to the extent that the provincial government, we caught the ear of, of René Lévesque at the time. And he heard about Pouvontuk and Pouvontuk standing on its defending its uh, right to ne never sell our birthright inheritance. And he wanted to come up, so we heard he was coming up, and Isra prepared that sign. Everywhere we go in Pavernatuk, we keep seeing the same photograph. Harry Tulagak took it in 1979. Isra Hanoyak, the former mayor, is standing on a rocky hill next to a sign. In Inuktitut and French, the sign reads... Welcome to Pavernatuk. Welcome to the territory that has not been ceded to the James Bay Treaty. It's, it's so, it's just so simple, but it comes from so deep. That summer I helped paint that sign. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I remember. So, uh, I remember using the paint and, you know, painting over each syllabic. All people arriving, going from the airport into the community would see it. So René Lévesque came. He did. He had a good visit. He was given a beautiful parka by Lila Halingo, and he smoked every minute while he was here. <laughs> René Lévesque went back empty-handed. To this day, the people of Pavernatuk hold fast to their opposition to the James Bay Agreement. Even though the benefits to the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement fall to us today, still the principle of not having ceded our land, not having ceded our rights, remains truly important to the people of Pouvernitok because. There's this movement now of getting land back. Now, it's, it's, it's a complete struggle. It's going to be an uphill battle. And how much land will we get back? We want 
full jurisdiction over, you know, that, that land. But that was not the only battle the people of Pavernatuk would fight. In the uh, late 70s and uh, uh, during the 80s, we had uh, like an epidemic of, of suicides. The eighth teenage suicide of the year on the Hudson Bay coast of northern Quebec. An appalling statistic, more than 20 times the Canadian average. Young people came back from from school. There was nothing to do. They were taught how to live down south. Uh, they couldn't practice their uh, training here. There was nothing. No jobs. And that led to a lot of uh, mishap, like drinking and drugs. And It started in the 80s. They were none before. None whatsoever, not in a hundred years, were there any suicide before the 1980s. And then followed right, right in its evil heels was child sexual abuse. I remember those days to be dark, the darkest days that I've ever experienced in, in my life because we've lost, we had lost a lot of our own young, vibrant people who had a future. But for some reason, one of them did it, then the other one followed. It's almost like once a month for two years. I saw people walking on our streets, wailing. No words were spoken. They couldn't speak words. They were so hurt and so damaged by all the things that were happening. Once we had a group, somebody from Toronto and another place where they were Catholic and they came to our church and they wanted to share the experiences they had. Being who I am, I ended up being the interpreter of the guys who were talking to the community in the church. But one evening, the guy just, I mean, the first one, he stood up and he he couldn't speak. He was just watching. And he told me something that was so profound. He's from Ireland, and he says, in Ireland, my neighbors are blowing each other up, and they're killing each other. I've lived it. I've seen it. And then he said, but I've never seen pain like this. You would think a guy that uh, saw all that would not be, I mean, wouldn't be faced by this, what he saw, the pain that he saw from the community of, of loss and sexual abuse. I said, oh my goodness, this must be bad. <laughs> that must must be bad. And during that period, the people looked up in the spiritual sense. And for six months, they lived practically at the church. 
And in the church, inside the church, people were expressing their hurt. People were expressing their anger. That's where everything opened up. And during those six months period, people were accusing each other and forgiving each other. And at, there was a light at the end of the tunnel during those six months. So we had a lot of things to do, like make them remember how to live here and off the land. And that's what I've been doing. Uh, uh, I started a survival training center as well the uh, uh, the cadet group, junior Canadian Rangers. One day, we came up with this. Well, we have these old rangers, these Eskimos, old Eskimos who have so much knowledge and they're really into fulfilling their role as the military's eyes in the north. And a lot of the military people that used to come here, and not just Pumundu, but all over, mm-hmm. to, to, to learn from them, to survive out there. And we got this bright little light bulb one time, and they said, look at all of our children dying. How do we get them out? Well, if we have these old rangers, and they have all this knowledge that they're not really passing on now at that time, all these young people, old and the young, why don't we marry the two and say, this group, that we're going to try something and we'll call it Junior Rangers. And a fellow counselor of mine and I started doing the legwork, approaching governments and the military and deputy ministers to the hilt, I mean, like, we had about a hundred deputy ministers at one time. Which colleague? Paulusi Nubalinga. And uh, I started with the three communities. And the general said, if, if it doesn't work out in six months, forget about it. I went ahead, and in six months, I had 12 communities. The rest, I can say, is history, because the Junior Ranger program is now a national program. It is national. It's all over Canada. And we didn't have to call it suicide prevention. How was it suicide prevention, though? The youth got so enthralled being out in the land, learning how to play the guitar, skinning a caribou, catching fish, things they ne- the kids they didn't ever do as a group. Now they were starting to do that as a group with the old, old, older people. And that's how it became what I will never label as suicide prevention. I will never agree with all these regional 50 or 60 people sitting down in one big room, bawling their eyes out, saying, we should stop this, we should stop that. How do we stop suicide? That's a a bunch of bunk to me, because I've seen a real way and approach of getting youth involved so much in life that they will not even entertain anything like this. Since the 1980s, Pavernatuk has faced other difficult years and other social crises. But, Paulusi says, they are still trying to create their own solutions. We run the uh, elders' home. 
prisoner integration group. And the la- and the land. Yes. In fact, my my sons are two of them are teaching young criminals who would otherwise be in jail. But we we're making them provide to the elders the fish they catch, the animals they they catch when they're learning how to how to do it. That's important because that's what first of all makes problems. Lack of knowledge and how how to subsist and live on the land. Paulusi and others have fought to revive the dog sledding tradition that was almost wiped out. There's now even an all Nunavik dog sledding race. We do know what we need, but we're still trying to find those mechanisms where we can help our people the way we want to, the way we are meant to, as Inuit to Inuit. When we try to adapt one program that comes from the Western world to ours, it just doesn't work. I know it's a big question, but when you say we know what we need, yes. can, you just, can you just give me a glimpse? The respect of our rights is to be a self-determining people. We are running our own programs. Ideally, we are creating our own programs and we're making our own laws. And these laws are based on Inuit values. These laws are based on those values. And we have to also realize that those values, they are enduring and they are fundamental. And we can't regard them as traditional. They are living, and we adapt them to our contemporary lives. Lisa Koperqualik doesn't see Inuit life as defined by a conflict between tradition and modernity. Instead, she says, Inuit communities like Pavernatuk are indigenizing modernity. Traditional is versus modern. And, you know, unless traditional, the word, the term is used for an adjective of something, I don't mind. But when we pitch the Inuit world against a modern world, it means that we're a traditional world against a modern world. So I just, I don't see the world like this. But indigenizing modernity, let's say, as an indigenous people, we are part of this society where we take part in rulemaking, we take part in the decisions that impact the Arctic, that impact our communities in an equal way to all others. Our language is part of the society. We are speaking our language fully. You know, our knowledge is constant and living. seen so much change in the time that you've been alive. Like Pavernitak back then and Pavernitak now. 
and just how you're describing how the co-op has contributed to society and, and the despair of the 80s and 90s and or the late 80s and 90s. What's the single most important thing that's contributed to Pervernatuck's existence today? The cooperative movement. People knowing that they truly can work together, that their lives can and will be improved by doing it together. And as a result, you, you can stand on your principles of this land is ours. It's, we're not here, we're not going to sell it because too many people from the past did what they could to survive to get us here. My great-grandfather had an experience that's just absolutely phenomenal. The family was always moving, nomadic. In the wintertime, they're, they're out there in the, man, in the island just off the coast of Ibuyivik. It's about 90, 90 kilometers off the shore. They were going out every day. The men go out every day to, to harvest the seal. The seal is a source of food. It's a source of uh, clothing. It's a source of heat because of the oil. It's, it sustains life. So you do what you can to go out there in minus 50. But the currents are so strong there. There's some, there are times when you, the solid ice that you thought you were on gets separated from the actual solid ice. And that's exactly that's what happened to the man. His name is Paksawaluk. And this is my, my grandfather's father. He's cut off from solid ice with his dog who was a sniffer for the uh, seal holes. From Mansell Island to Inukchuak, 406 kilometers as the Tuluwak flies, as the crow flies. <laughs> yes. But he's, he's popping from one ice pan to the other, to on the a, next. On a piece of ice. On a piece of ice. Going here, going there, going here, going there. And the knowledge, the cultural knowledge is such that once this happens to you, because it did happen on a reoccurring basis, here's what you do. And that's what he did. He said, you see the sun, you go towards the south, the sun. Otherwise, you'll be going out into the Hudson Strait and nobody will ever see you again. You go away, you go against the current that's trying to take you out and you go south. And that's how he ended up in Inukjuak. It's an amazing survival actual event that tells me I I don't have I can do anything. I can do anything to survive. You owe it to that grandfather. Yes, I do. Yes. My father did, my grandfather did, my son, his son, and his children, and all the others. So there's just generations to come. We owe it to them having survived all that. Not to wimp out, but here to stand and, 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 and to have dignity and stand on our integrity, of their integrity, and honor them. And that's where we stand. And it's amazing. Like, it's just, no, I will not give up on anything. I can't. We can't be people who just give up uh, against a little uh, adversity. Yeah. A little adversity. <laughs> a little adversity. <laughs> Sounds like a lifetime of adversity. Yes. Adversity in the sense that... Uh, they think that big government is this big scary man hiding behind a, what do you call it, an imaginary crown. 
The government likes to say the crown this, the crown that, but he has no other generations before him or past him here buried, dotted along the, uh, the all all the throughout the whole of Nunavik. Like I know where my great grandfather lies, my on my paternal side, just just up here. Wow. I know where my great grandmother lies in Ivujivik. My grandfather is here. There are lots of lots of uh, graves at Isuqsiyavik uh, at Nanuktuq Hill. On there are nine nine graves on that. Where, where it's a seventy kilometers here where my father's uh, grew up. But none of Reni Levesque's people are buried here. Or uh, any of the Canadian prime ministers, they're not no. here. No. <laughs> so, that's that's my that's where I stand. That's where I stand on my birthrate. On ideas, you were listening to the people of Pavernatuk working together for themselves. This episode was produced by Pauline Holdsworth. Special thanks to the people who welcomed us to Pavernatuk and spoke with us for this story. Paulusi Novalinga, Carol Bolm, Wani Bolm, Paulusi Napertuk, Harry Tulugak, Eliasi Salawalak, Peter Boy Itakalak, Yonasi Sivarapik, Lucy Kalingo, Julian Dufresne, and Lisa Koprakwalak. At CBC, thanks to everyone at the CBC Library Partnerships Program and at CBC Archives. Thanks also to Salu Ava, Duncan McHugh, Garrett Hinchy, Michael Dick, and Robert Doan. The next episode in our series is about Sanak, the first novel written in Inukchitut. It follows an outspoken young woman in Nunavik as she and her community navigate the changes set in motion by the arrival of Southerners. I learned from my mother's book, we have to be ready. And I learned from this book, the family, they were really help each other. If they were not helping each other, we won't be here. It's a history book. It's a philosophy book. Yes. It's teaching you how to live. Yeah. That's coming up in the next installment of our special series on change and resilience in Nunavik. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. And by the way, we're happy to announce that filmmaker, writer, and political organizer Astra Taylor is our next Massey lecturer. Please visit our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, for more information. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.